Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. All right, I am recording this intro on Election Eve, and hopefully you, dear listener, are hearing it sometime on Election Day. Uh, Maybe you're not. Maybe you're catching this episode days or weeks later. Uh, So I guess it's kind of like a time capsule. But instead of being filled with tchotchkes, it's just a bundle of anxiety and constantly refreshed web pages of 538.com and the dulcet sound of Michael Barbaro. Anyway, for this election day episode, I wanted to talk to someone who could help identify the intersection of wine and politics, which is precisely why I reached out to host Sefa Kunkanen. As sales manager for the wine importer Louis Dresner Selections, Josefa, in her own words, is firmly rooted in the wine counterculture. I want to talk about like the parallels between progressivism in wine and in politics, as well as how to make a difference in your local community, because Josefa's very involved, not just within like the natural wine community that exists here in the States, but also within her local community in Chicago. Now, I should tell you, Josef and I spend the first bit of this episode just talking about running. She's also a marathon runner and recently did the virtual Boston race in her hometown of Chicago. Um, but as the episode goes on, we do hash out what it means to find your voice and speak your mind. I hope you like the episode. Here's Josefa. How are you? Um, I'm okay. Uh, you know, like I said earlier, living the dream. Yeah. The, the COVID dream that we're all in, the Groundhog Day that we're all living right now. So I truly have lost track of like all like days, like weekends, weekdays. Yeah. And it's our schedules are so convoluted right now. Um, I did a, a sales meeting for a Connecticut distributor on Friday at 730 in the morning, my time, which that's brutal. I mean, I guess it would be really bad if you were in like Pacific time and you were having to wake up crazy early for New York meetings. At least you're kind of like in the middle in Chicago. In the middle. And, but it was the first time I had ever had to wake up early for, for work in seven months. So (laughs) I shouldn't complain. And I guess you're normally on the road a lot, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. And I like a hundred days out of the year you were on the road or more, more. Yeah. Um, yeah, probably two thirds of the year I was traveling. I mean, I'd have these lulls where I, I wouldn't travel like, you know, mid June to late July it was always relatively quiet. I didn't do a lot of traveling then and maybe a little bit in December, but I was still doing some work, travel work in December. Like last year, a year ago, this time. Um, oh, no, no. I, we were in Italy much later last year, I think. Yeah, because we went after Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. So. The last big trip you probably took was to Valais, right? Uh, the Loire Valley, Ladive, like well, that whole yeah. Stuff. My trip to my last trip to Europe was that was the the fairs in January, uh, but my actual very last work trip was I was in Texas. Really? Yeah. Well, you, I think you were in Japan. Um, I, I was probably there. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't get to see you, but I started out in Houston, and um, I was going to do an event. Uh, with Justin at one of the places. Um, I can't, the name's escaping me right now. I'm sorry. All good. Maybe like public services. Or no, it wasn't Penny. public services. It was, was it Penny. Penny. Penny Quarter, yeah. It was Penny Quarter. And that's the day that they canceled the Houston Rodeo. Mm. And everybody was just kind of weirded out by that because that's kind of a big deal in Houston, I guess. It's huge because like all the vendors that are there, like it's one of the biggest events they have for the entire year. They make so much money then. And there's a lot of like children that like are involved in, I guess, like raising livestock or like Mm -hmm. do the events. And there's a lot of scholarship money on the line for that stuff. Like some of these kids, like they pay for college through like whatever, like wrangling of animals. Right. I don't know what the events are called. I've been to the rodeo. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, 4-H or I'm sure probably. But, uh, and then, um, that night I got on a flight to San Antonio and I just remember hanging out with, um, Shane and David at, um, Little Death Mm. and we were just drinking. We drank a whole bottle of mezcal and we're freaking out. (laughs) That's wild. Yeah, it was really wild. And then I came home and that was with the weekend that my husband had to cancel the third coast swath. 
Mm. And, um, you know, so the growers were, there were some growers that were coming to Chicago already for that. And, you know, when, once we canceled the event, it was, you know, that's when everybody, they called for the shelter in place and they closed the restaurants. And so, yeah, it was a really weird time, but it's always, I'm always going to remember that last work trip, which was to Texas. What, and I imagine like quarantining in Chicago in the months of like March and April, like the weather's still pretty shitty in Chicago then, right? right. Like, yeah. So it's not like here in Houston where we were able to like be outside. I was able to like average 50 miles a week, like just like run as much as I wanted to be outdoors up there. You were truly like cooped up, right? Well, and I was still kind of training for the Boston Marathon at the time. Mm, yeah. So I, I mean, I had gone the week before I was in Texas, I was in Portland and um, I had done um, a long run up in, I don't know if you've ever been to Portland and, and yeah. um, Forest Park. It's this Which beautiful park. park? Um, it's, it has all these like trails in the woods in, okay. in Northwest Portland. Okay. And, I did the Portland marathon and I'm maybe that, maybe the route for the marathon itself, like went through there maybe, unless you think it's like more of a traily kind of vibe. Well, it's not like a hard surface, but it, where you, where the trailhead that I usually go to, to start my run, it's all uphill. So I did like, I started at the hotel and then w went to the trailhead because I think I had to run like 10 or 12 miles that weekend on a training run. I don't know how you trained for marathons with the amount of traveling you were doing. I mean, if you're on the road two thirds of the year, I mean, do you just like pack like a bunch of like extra running gear with you and then? Um, no, I pack um, Icebreaker. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar mm -hmm. with Icebreaker. Um, it's, a, it's a line of um, uh, clothing, you know, casual or fitness clothing that's made out of merino wool hmm. so it doesn't hold like you let it dry out overnight it doesn't hold any stink oh you know? so there's a i think a company called tracksmith that i have been getting ads for with malcolm yeah. gladwell yeah um so you you swear by the merino wool it it's better than like the Absolutely. smart fabric oh my god yeah hmm. the the smart wool or the it's like smart wool it's icebreaker but like even in the warm weathers, I just wear like the tank tops. Really? And the, so you know, like you said, you don't have to pack as much because you can let it dry out overnight and it won't, sm I, honest to God, it won't smell the next day. I need to look into something like that because yeah. I'm always, that's like my white whale is finding a pair of shorts that I love, Yeah. you know, or like a tank top that I will love. I have one New Balance singlet that I wear for all of my races. It's my orange Your lucky New Balance shirt. singlet. Yeah. It's my lucky shirt, but yeah. I don't have a pair of lucky shorts. Not yet. So yeah, I, I icebreaker makes shorts. It. My husband likes his icebreaker shorts a lot. So yeah. Question is how many pockets they have. You know. Well, for me, um, I can't believe we're talking about this. Uh, this is me, important stuff, Osefa. People need to know. The, I think the podcast that, community needs to know. I think for women, the the game changer for me has been. Um, the, the thigh pockets on Ooh. the, um, the running shorts and leggings, it's been a game changer really? for me because I can put my phone in it and yeah, it's, mm -hmm. yeah. So yeah. you did run the Boston virtually this year, well, right? Well, I, so, you know, after the, the, you know, when they, they postponed it to mm -hmm. September and then they canceled the September one. And so it was like midsummer in Chicago and it was hot and muggy and I just didn't feel like going out and doing the 15, 18 and 20 mile long runs. I just, yeah. I, you know, just, I wasn't in the, the right headspace. Um, but my husband and I spent a lot of time this summer. Um, we live by this, this trail called the 606 and it's just really easy to get up in the morning and go out there and just, you know, run a 5K or a 10K, like out and back. It's 2.7 miles long. So from our house, which is the western end of it, to the eastern end and back, it's almost a 10K. So, mm -hmm. you know, it was super easy to, it's super easy to just go there and get a, get a run in. But once the pandemic started, it was very difficult for people to shelter, you know, to socially distance on it. Oh yeah. I'm sure that like most parks, it was just like swamped with, it was swamped and nobody was wearing masks yeah. and, and you know, it's easier to run without a mask. So we would just run in the middle of the street. 
And so on some of these longer runs, we started exploring some of these neighborhoods in Chicago um, that are have been underserved, um, but they still have a rich history of um, culture and art and architecture, and they've been neglected for, for years. They've been neglected. And after the George Floyd murder, um, we started um, doing these weekly uh, trash pickups in some of these neighborhoods. Um, and, uh, you know, cause one of this, this neighborhood close to my house, uh, you know, was, was just hit really, really hard. And so we started out that weekend right afterwards, you know, sweeping glass and, mm-hmm. and doing all that, that cleanup work. And then we just kind of got into a groove in the summertime and would go out one or two times a week and pick a different corner that was really bad and just go out and pick up and try to engage the community. And so then we would start running in these neighborhoods. And I remember we did a a long run down. We started down in Hyde Park in the South shore and like ran by Michelle Obama's childhood home and did these explore these beautiful neighborhoods that we never go to because, you know, when we're training for runs, we just go on the lakefront or we do do the trail run right here. And so we really got out and, and, and on these longer runs and started exploring the city. And so originally when I was going to do the 26-2 virtual, I had a kind of a route planned out. And then I kind of gave up on the long runs because it was like it was hot. <laughs> Yeah. And so Mark and I did it in a, in a relay. So we did that route basically, but he ran the first 13 one and then I finished it. And, and, you know, we started here and went literally through all of these historic African-American neighborhoods and Mexican neighborhoods that are just such a beautiful part of the city that nobody really um, experiences because they're too afraid. And, mm-hmm. um, I had listened to Michelle Obama's podcast, her first one, where she interviewed Brock and they were talking about, you know, these neighborhoods and how this this election has engaged many young people on a different level, a level that we haven't seen before. And a lot of these young people that are crossing over into these other neighborhoods and organizations like My Block, My Hood, My City have opened people's eyes to the fact that these neighborhoods are just like ours. And we can't live our lives in fear and we can only um, embrace these communities and become a part of them. And, you know, we encountered nothing but warm people and it was, they were just such uh, satisfying runs for us this summer. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I imagine that those are not necessarily neighborhoods that have like running paths or dedicated bike lanes or anything like that. You you really do see like a huge infrastructural change as a Mm -hmm. runner, Mm -hmm. like here in Houston, at least like when I go running through like the River Oaks neighborhood, like it's beautifully paved streets. I can run in the middle of the road and like cars will like generally move out of the way for me, you know? Yeah. Um, So, well, we have in Chicago, we have a really amazing um, part of the city that they refer to as the boulevard system. And it's a series of, of wider boulevards that are flanked by like grassy parkways. And mm-hmm. throughout the city, if you go to a, a city of Chicago map, if you Google Chicago Boulevard system, you'll be able to see it. But then there's these uh, throughout the city, these boulevards are intersected by big parks that um, were designed by Frederick Law Olmsted, which is a, a very prominent yeah, shout out Olmsted. central park. And um, and there's these beautiful parks. And so the park that's closest to our house, uh, is Humboldt park. And over time it, they've improved it and they've, you know, cleaned up the paths and, and made it a little bit more, um, user-friendly, um, just because of the community and the, in the neighborhood, how it changed over time. It's still a, a, a very important, um, Puerto Rican American neighborhood, and they're 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 fighting to hold this identity because it's really important. It's the identity of this park. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the rest of the parks, like you, like we would run through Garfield Park and Douglas Park and Washington Park, that you can see the neglect. 
And, and that's really, you know, the budgetary constraints of the Chicago Park District, but it's also these, you know, we need to fight for these parks and these open spaces because people in those communities have just as much right to green space as the people in Lincoln Park, which is the, mo- you know, the most affluent neighborhood in the city of Chicago with the, you know, the most pristine parkland and all of the amenities that go along with that. And you've run, you've run the Chicago Marathon you're you're like a emeritus or veteran of the <laughs> Chicago Marathon at this point, right? You've run it. What is yeah. it? Fifteen times? No, not that many. Not that many. Um, I I I can't remember exactly how many it is, but it's probably close to ten now. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, it does that route change much from year to year? Do they take people through different neighborhoods, or no. is it pretty much just like? It's been it's been the route as we know it now for uh gosh I can't like so when I was in high school we used to go and watch my friend's dad run the Chicago Marathon and it was you know back in the time of Bill Rogers and you know all these old you know like these these historical figures in marathon city marathon lore mm-hmm. um I mean I remember seeing Joan Benoit Samuelson run when she wow. yeah I mean it's just cool. Um, and yeah, I, I, um, I fangirl on her all the time. She's like one of my heroes. Um, but, um, yeah, they changed it when it finally got sponsorship, bigger sponsorship. Cause there was one year that they didn't hold it cause they lost sponsorship. And I think this was sometime wow. in the eighties. They really and, fumbled the bag on that one. That's well, crazy. yeah, it was really, um, I mean, I remember this food company sponsored it and then they did, they, it, it was the, the one year in marathon history, Chicago marathon history that, that they didn't have one. Um, it's but then Bank once, of America now, right? It's Bank of America now. And before that it was LaSalle bank. Um, and so once they got the big funding, they, um, and, and Carrie Pinkowski, who's been a huge, force in the leadership of that organization um, fought to have different neighborhoods represented. So they do, they, when they did change that course, they, they started to be a lot more inclusive of some of these neighborhoods, but it's largely like the North side and the West side Mm -hmm. and a little bit on like you go through Bronzeville, which is a very historic African-American community. Um, But this summer they were the same bank of America organization was planning a half marathon uh, on the city's west side, which mm. is, you know, some of these neighborhoods that I've talked about, like Garfield and Douglas Park. And I think that was their objective to try to mm. get some more, get more of these neighborhoods involved um, and included. And uh, they had to cancel that race. So mm. we didn't, we were signed up and we were super excited about it, but we didn't get to run it. So from an outsider's perspective, I know of Chicago's like South Side, because that's where they plan to put President Barack Obama's presidential library, right? Yeah. Um, and I have a buddy that went to university of Chicago's Booth school of business. And I think that's also in that area, like, uh, the South side. Um, well, Booth, uh, I think the, the, the Booth school, I think they have their campus now downtown. Oh, okay. You know, and they built this beautiful, you know, modern building that was, yeah. yeah. Somewhere Um, on like Michigan Avenue or something like that. Yeah. It's just, it's right on the river. It's, um, but, um, yeah, the campus down in Hyde Park. And then the adjoining park, Jackson Park, which is part of this boulevard system and parks that I was telling you about, um, that, yeah, there was controversy because, um, I mean, that neighborhood, it's Hyde Park, so it's already pretty affluent, but mm-hmm. you, you get a little further south and a little further west and you start seeing, <sighs> I don't want to say decay, but neglect. I mean, years yeah. of neglect. And there's there's a lot of community activists in, in Englewood and places like that that are really fighting hard. Um I alluded to my block, my hood, my city. And, um, what is that like? Cause I know you referenced it earlier, but I don't know what that is. It's, uh, an organization that was founded by a, a Chicago native from Englewood and Chatham and these neighborhoods. And, um, his, his goal is to try to get, um, both the, the, the kids from these neighborhoods exposed to other parts of the city. Some of these kids have never been outside of their own neighborhoods, um, and then also bring people from other neighborhoods into these neighborhoods. And ha- these kids are like, uh, organizing tours of their neighborhood and the history of their neighborhood. And you can sponsor some of these, um, kids, like if you're a chef, like, you know, come and see, uh, what we do in this restaurant, or if mm-hmm. you're uh, an attorney, 
you know, invite a group of these kids to a law office. And I think it's just exposing people that, that are kind of have been isolated in these neighborhoods to see other things and go to other places and go to a museum. And I think his, I think his calling card is, especially now after the, the, the civil unrest that we had here in Chicago this summer was name something that you can do in your own block to have a positive change in your community. And so it's just trying to get that and trying to get people aware that it's just, it starts at the local level. Starts at a very, very local level, which is, I think, something yeah, your block. And I think that's something that we sometimes lose track of because politics in general have just become so like nationalized, right? Like, like national politics have played a bigger role now than they ever did before. And that's mm-hmm. affecting, you know, people that are running for Senate, right? Like it no longer matters what they're going to do within their state. It only matters what's going to happen in D.C., right? Right. Um, well, people, people have neglected down ballot elections for years, and that's what kind of got us into the situation that we're in. It was because people didn't get involved in, in the down ballot and how, and yeah. now we're seeing how important that is and how by not, um, not doing the homework and doing the research and seeing what these, these candidates at the local level were trying to do to affect change. Um, we saw how these extreme factions got control of state legislatures and city governments and things like that. So that's the really big goal we have right now in Texas is trying to overturn, like flip the state legislature, turn that blue. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's where, because these are, these are the, the, the people that are going to control some decisions in this upcoming election. And I, you know, I, I, I see what's happening in Texas tomorrow. They, the, the Texas Supreme court ruled, uh, that those 117 or 120,000 ballots should count. But now these people are suing and taking it to the federal courts. Yeah, it's it's wild. Like, um, we're recording this on what day is it? Sunday, right? It's sun. Yeah, it's Sunday. So yeah, I think they're deciding tomorrow, tomorrow, some sort of ruling about all those people that did drive in voting or drive. Right. Voting. And then if this federal judge who's already on the fringe, Mm-hmm. Uh, rules in favor of these people that are s- saying that these ballots should not be counted, then they'll take it to the Supreme Court and look where we're at now. I mean, yeah. were you always this like involved politically, or do you do you remember there being a time when like a switch was flipped and you you became more politically involved? It's funny that you asked this um, because I was just talking about this recently. Um, and I'm going to date myself here, and I'm, so people are going to be able to figure out how old I am. Maybe we can bleep something out if you need to. We can, <laughs> no, it's okay. We can I don't care. I, I I'm owning the age. <laughs> um, so when I was in high school, um, we had a I was in a in an AP government class, and we had our assignment was to get involved in a, a political campaign, and it didn't matter who you were in, got involved with you could be republican or you can be involved with a democratic candidate it was you know you had to choose but you had to get involved in some way and so i remember there was a, a local uh, an election for um for state senate and there was two candidates they were both women and the the established candidate the incumbent was was a, a woman who was part of uh, a group called the Eagle Forum, and uh, which it came to light recently because uh, I don't know if you heard about this TV series that aired recently called Mrs. America. Oh yeah, with Kate Blanchett, right? Exactly. So mm-hmm. Kate Blanchett was playing the uh, the lead, which was Phyllis Schlafly, and she was the founder of this organization called the the um, the Eagle Forum, mm. and so. Um, this candidate who was the incumbent senator in my district, in my hometown district, in it's Park Ridge, Illinois. Um, she was uh, the the candidate that was running against her to try to unseat her uh, was a woman by the name of Rosemary Mulligan, and she was also a Republican, but she was a much more moderate Republican. Uh, so she was probably the only person. At that time, I wasn't old enough to vote. So we worked on this election and we canvassed and we knocked on doors and we did things like that. And then she lost that election. But then two years later, 
I think the term is two years for Senate in Illinois. No, four years later, uh, she was running against her again. And it was prior to Bush v. Gore. And I, the election was so close. It was a mere, like, you know, hundred votes and Penny Pullen contested it. And I was part of the people that went down to the Cook County board of elections to do the recount. And we wow. literally were like count, you know, looking at these ballots and then we would put them in like different piles. And so I think, and that was the, for that election, that was the only Republican vote I ever cast in my life. Hmm. Ever. <laughs> so. I mean, did you grow up like with like Republican leaning parents? Is that no, kind of how you had I, those I, ideas? Or? No, I, I grew up, um, I, you know, my mom's from Mexico and she came from a, you know, a, a, a big Catholic family, uh, not particularly hyper-religious, um, but my grandfather was a, a, a Catholic philosopher and he was pretty conservative in his views on a lot of things. But mm -hmm. my grandfather had a circle of friends that were um, uh, of all different views, including communists. Uh, he was he was friends with uh, Diego Rivera, the painter, who was a, yeah. a, a very outspoken communist. And, um, uh, and so there was that intellectual sort of background. And, um, you know, my my father, who was uh, an alcoholic, he had some strange political views uh, that I'm afraid that if he were alive today, he'd probably be like, super Trumpy, but, um, thank God he's not. <laughs> L luckily you don't have to worry about that. Right? <laughs> right, exactly. I think that's the challenge so well, many people I, are dealing with right now is reconciling those like parents or extended family members that are, you know, I riding think that it was, Trump train. It's only because my father, because he was an alcoholic and, and, you know, there was, I think my father was just susceptible to conspiracy theories, hmm. you know, like many, like many people. <laughs> yeah. It, so. Clearly, he was not alone in that. No, no. And that's why I think yeah. it would have been really easy for him to fall into that conspiracy theory. And didn't your parents own a restaurant? My mom. Your mom yeah. did. Okay. Yeah, she still does. Oh, wow. Uh, it's, uh, there's, you know, they've been struggling through the pandemic, but they've been doing a lot of um, takeout. Uh, Chicago just closed the restaurants down again. Mm. Uh, and unfortunately, unlike Texas, we can't do any really serious outdoor dining uh, this time of year. Is she so. able to like use her allocations of Demore and Uli's oh, no, and like a, uh, it's sell a, those retail? Can it's she... a fan. No, it's not a wine place. <laughs> no, uh, it was. Yeah. It was a wine place. You know, when I was working there back in the eighties, yeah. when I was just kind of getting into my own yeah. with wine and discovering things like Kermit Lynch and uh, you know discovering what real wine was kind of all about back then. And, uh, mm. but now it's, a, it's just a really local family Mexican restaurant out in the North, Northwest side of Chicago. Um, so yeah, it's uh, mm -hmm. a lot of tequila. <laughs> <laughs> not, not as much Beaujolais being. No, no. Well, um, so you, you worked there, you worked, at your parents' restaurant, and did you immediately jump from like that on-premise gig to working on the supply side of things or distribution side of things? Well, I started in distribution in uh, yeah, so I worked there through the um, through the '90s, and I started in distribution uh, in 2002, which was I had this opportunity. It was a startup in Chicago, it was the Maverick Wine Company. I was like sales rep number two or number three that wow. was hired. Um, and that's how, you know, how I, I, I had always wanted to do that. Um, but I always felt like I wanted to be able to be in a position where I could sell wines that I believed in and that I loved. And I was really, I was really, really fortunate. And, um, I remember my very first day, uh, the original owner of the company was walking me through the warehouse and it was, you know, only like a quarter full. Uh, and he hands me, he puts a bottle of wine in my hand. He's like, here, take this home. You got to try it. It's delicious. And it was a bottle of Cloris Blanche. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So Cloris Blanche Sauvignon. <laughs> and my very first ride with uh, at Louis Dresner at 
Maverick was with Joe Dressner. <laughs> and um, mm. it was a very fun, fun day because the day before the person that worked with him the day before said, oh my God, good luck with that guy tomorrow. He's such a dick. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I, you know, I was, so I was terrified and I spent, you know, after like an hour, Joe and I were just having a great conversation and mm -hmm. he was funny and sardonic and just, there was a sense of humor about Joe that, uh, that I, I got and a lot of people didn't get. And so that's why mm. they, they had a hard time with it. At the time. Was, was the portfolio of Dresner very different then than it is now? I mean, obviously it's expanded quite a bit, I'm sure, yeah. you know, yeah. but in terms of like, just like the, the ethos of, you know, Dresner, right? Like it's one of the OGs. It's one of like the benchmark importers of natural minimal intervention wine, and it's been around long enough that I feel like it represents all these different kind of like levels within kind of natural wine. You've got like these amazing producers that, you know, people look up to, you know, that have been around for a long, long time. And then you have newer producers doing interesting things. You've got everything from like Oki Pinti to Lutz to Foradori. You've got all sorts of things all over the place. I mean, how do you see the portfolio having changed over that time? Well, when I... So when I first started selling Louis Dresner wines at Maverick, um, you know, at that time, the, um, the portfolio was largely centered around the Loire Valley. Mm. And I think at that time that those were the very early days of them starting to work with um, Italian wineries. Like Barra was the very first uh, Italian producer that Louis Dresner started working with. And, and from working with Barra, then you know, other producers started coming on board. Um, it was, you know, it's like a series of networking and connections that, that Kevin and Joe had uh, through uh, working with Alessandra and Stefano Bellotti at Cascina de Lulivi. And so those are probably the two first Italian wines from the portfolio that I was ever exposed to as a salesperson. Mm -hmm. But um, I think at that time, I mean, the term natural wine didn't really exist at that time. Uh, and it wasn't our goal to be natural wine producers using the air quotes, because like mm -hmm. I said, that I don't think, I don't think that term existed at that time. And, um, I think we were, we ended up in that category because of a lot of the producers that we worked with, like, you know, Thierry Puzula, who, um, really started being a leader and a voice for this natural wine movement at that time. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's not something that we created. We just happened to end up in it. And I think the diversity of the portfolio, I mean, we still have these, these, these pillars in the Loire Valley that um, have always been uh, an expression of terroir driven wines of minimal intervention. And, you know, and then you start getting, you start seeing newer generations coming and, you know, our expansion into Italy in Germany and then Portugal. Um, and it's not because we're necessarily looking for a producer because let's say we don't have a producer in this particular region and we should it, that's not really how it happens. It's just word of mouth and going to meet people and going to these different fairs. And, you know, Kevin and Jules spend a lot of time um, tasting these different wines uh, from different people and, and it's just, it, I think it just, it's a really organic process. It's not something that's methodical or, you know, mm -hmm. it's, you know, we happen to develop relationships with people. There's a lot of time and effort and thought that goes into um, the selection of growers in the portfolio. It's interesting though, because like over time, you're right, the portfolio has expanded and you have like another generation take over the winery. So it might be mm -hmm. a winery that y'all have worked with for a super long time, like Moss, but now it's the kids doing a lot of the work, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, we see it at Foradori too. And, um, you know, Elisabetta is, is spending more time making cheese and <laughs> the kids are really, the kids have really become the, uh, a very, uh, well-known force as the next generation of what's going on at Fordori. Yeah, you know, That's we see awesome. that. We see that 
in a lot of. So what I want to retire to doing is making cheese. Well, that's know? what she, Elizabeth just said, told us. She's like, I just want to make cheese now. <laughs> the first time we, uh, I think we were, uh, we went to the, the, the vineyard where the, um, the noziolos planted, um, mm-hmm. and there was she was keeping some cows there and that's when the subject first came up and this was a few years ago as wild. Yeah. That's funny. Um, but similarly, there's also been kind of this generational change within like the wine community, right? Like you've got all of these very young sommeliers that have really gotten into like the natural wine scene or not even like sommeliers, but just consumers that have mm-hmm. really like, for whatever reason, you know, natural wines connected with them. And I think there's like a good side to that. And there's like a bad side to that. I think, yes. you know, the good side, right, is that it's democratized so much of wine. It's taken away some of the gatekeepers a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, you no longer have to worry about whether this wine gets a certain score in order to like succeed in the market. It's truly does the wine resonate with people? Is it made thoughtfully? You know, it's funny on your on your Instagram page, right? Like you, you say that you proudly represent like the counterculture within wine specifically. Um, mm-hmm. But I think also kind of like there, there's a through line between all the progressive kind of ideals that we've seen brought up over the past six to eight months and what kind of goes on with the natural wine. I mean, it's that idea of like getting rid of some of these gatekeepers in the community, you know, trying to promote something that's made ethically. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there've been moments where like the natural wine community kind of jumped the shark a little bit or, you know, made some mistakes. But I think in general you know, there's a desire to break down some of those like systemic barriers that there were before. Yeah. Um, I mean, and there's, and, and, and that's not saying that, that we don't have a long way to go because we do, but you know, at least we're having the conversation about things that were never talked about as much before. Mm-hmm. You know, we're having this conversation about farming and we're having the conversations about labor practices and we're having these conversations about um, being more inclusive in this community. Um, you know, we see it in all, you know, all sorts of uh, areas of hospitality. But, um, you know, I think that these kinds of wines force us to ask the important questions. You know, it's... it. And, and, you know, we've seen a, a, we've seen some divergence, you know, there's, there's this desire to capitalize or co-op the natural wine movement to make, you know, these wines that are healthy or keto or good for your, you know, Cameron Diaz is a big listener of this podcast. She, she. She listens to every episode, you know, lets me know after each one. So we can put her on blast. It's fine. (laughs) But I I think, you know, so that's what's created this rush to make these low intervention wines. And they're, you know, it's not like we can, we can stack them like barefoot sellers. And so there's always going to be this greenwashing effect that we're going to see, I think. Um, And so I've never heard that term greenwashing. Really? No, I Maybe I haven't. It's just like gone over my head, but that's well, not well. Like you know, the the organic lettuce that's in the bag at at Trader Joe's, uh, you know, just because it says organic on the label, doesn't you know? And they may have they they this lettuce may come from some you know organic farm in the Central Valley in California, but they're still treating their their workers like shit, and they you know may not have the best um, the best practices. Uh, other than they've managed to get some sort of certification. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where the term greenwashing has come from. And okay. so I think there's going to, there's, you know, within this, this undefined term of natural wine, there's, you know, we're already starting to see this kind of greenwashing mm-hmm. uh, just because it doesn't have any sulfur, you know, doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a, a wine that's delicious or it doesn't necessarily mean that it came from grapes that were, that were farmed well. It doesn't necessarily mean that it came from a a vineyard that uh, had ethical hiring practices and treated their employees well, paid them a living wage, you know, things like that, Mm -hmm. that are, that have, that are, you know, that's, those are the kind of questions we need to be asking. And obviously like the politics of wine is one thing, but do you ever find like, 
beyond talking about like labor practices and wine, but talking about like a U.S. national politics sense. Did you ever feel stifled in any way to like talk about that? Use your platform within the wine community to talk about those other things? Um, probably early in my career, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, we could. I can talk about. Um, you know, as a woman in the wine world, or or as a person who who I relied on sales for my income to kind of not be as expressive in my politics um, in certain places in order to not hurt my sales or to not offend uh, a sales rep that I might be working with or, you know, uh, you know, cause you don't know. I mean, it, there was a time where you, and maybe up until only four years ago that you wouldn't really talk about your politics when you were out working. Mm-hmm. And I think the election of Donald Trump changed that for a lot yeah. of people. And I'm, I'm very, very fortunate that uh, I work for uh, an organization that would never keep me from speaking my, you know, speaking. I do think that there is a big kind of like chasm that we don't always think about on our side of the business, our side being like buyers, right? Like, you know, a lot of sommeliers are given the opportunity to like speak their mind about a certain topic, you know, and really create whatever sort of like statement they want to through their wine program or whatever else. But you know, working on the supply side or distribution side, you know, it is, it's like you said, you know, you're, you're trying to maintain a sales relationship with individuals, right? right? Like it's something that I don't think is always discussed. And that was one thing that I really appreciated about what Rania put on last year with the Wonder Women of Wine Conference Mm -hmm. is that it wasn't just floor psalms or wine directors that were up there on the panel discussions. It was truly a mix of like importers, distributors, sales managers, you know, people from every different side of the industry, because it does affect everyone totally differently. Yeah. But I mean, you know, early in my career, I, I couldn't have, I didn't have the platform that I have now to be able to speak out, whether it's because of my gender or whether it's because of my political opinions, things like that. You know, I Mm. didn't have that, that luxury that I have now. And I don't know if, I mean, the luxury I shouldn't, I guess luxury is the wrong word, but I, to have that privilege of being able to speak out against the injustices that I see, um, because it's all connected. Wine is political. Well, you do a great job speaking out at least <laughs> on social media. You, your meme game and is pretty strong. Meme game is quite strong. Well, I try not to be a spreader of disinformation. Uh, <laughs> it's just a way for me to, to, to express my anger, my displeasure. Uh, maybe it's a way to, to help other people, like you said, be able to use their voices too, because everybody's voice is unique and everybody has a different way of expressing their, their, their views and their opinions. But it is um, challenging though, right? I mean, like navigating that balance because you want to be able to show real support, real substantial support for something and not just like virtue signal, right? Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's where you have to draw the line. You have to be really, really careful about that. Um, You know, a lot of what I speak about is backed up by action. You know, Mm -hmm. if I talk about, you know, the kind of changes that we need to make at the local level. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to go out and, and get involved and be election judges and help people vote and, you know, use our ability to help other people make changes and get mm-hmm. other people involved in the process. How's it been the past like month, like leading up to the election? I mean, I feel like we've been leading up to this election for the past like three years, but but really in kind of this like quote unquote home stretch of the past like month or two, I'm sure you're dealing with sim- similar sorts of anxiety that like me and so many other people are. But So like- much anxiety. And, and it's just coming to a head right now because like you said, the election is on Tuesday. People have been voting for a month now the the Republican Party has been showing us their true colors, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, and clearly signaling their intent if the election is remotely close. So I think it has to, in order to be able to hope that this 
regime changes, it has to be a mandate. It has to be a landslide. Yeah. And it's been tricky. I mean, especially like the coronavirus is still going on. You just said that, you know, Chicago restaurants had to shut down again. It's right? it's horrible here. It's, you know, we have a positivity rate of over 7% now mm. from, you know, when we were over the summer, we were trying to get it under 4%. And it's, it, you know, they closed the restaurants down and and it's a horrible situation we're in because the restaurants have been doing everything they possibly can to keep their employees safe and to keep their customers safe. You know, the, the restaurants here, the community that I'm involved with here in Chicago, they've been working so hard to, to try to get this thing under control. And then you have outside forces that have stymied their efforts because, mm-hmm. you know, it's people who are having these big, huge parties in homes and, you know, not following these measures because they feel like it's an impingement on their freedoms. Um, I think, you know, we fail to think about how we can mitigate this by acting as a community, you know, and people are still more concerned about their personal freedoms and more about acting as individuals rather than as the collective. And so we find ourselves in this situation again where, you know, uh, infections are up and hospitalizations are up and, you know, we're not at the point where they fear uh, ICU units from getting overrun in the city, but, you know, but we're still going to have people that are the most vulnerable and the weakest people in our society that have been affected most. I mean, the highest rates of, of, of the death rates and the infection rates are in these, these underserved communities. Yeah. And because they're the ones that have to go to work and they have to get on the bus and they have to do all these things in order to feed their families and and have the rent paid and things like that. So I have the luxury of working from my, my home, but many people don't have that luxury. It's stressful. It's, it's very, very stressful. Um, And we're only going to get, it's going to get colder. People are going to be inside even more than they were before through the fall and summer. So yeah. What's, what's your, election night game plan you well, down the hatches are you <laughs> we mark and i are both them? election judges so okay. uh we're going to be working at we got both got assigned to our local poll the one that we um normally vote at mm-hmm. um and so we're going to be at the poll from 5 a.m until 7 p.m wow <laughs> so uh when the polls close we uh we're going to come home and i don't i'm pretty sure you know jill zamorski Mm-mm. she's an MS. Um, she's here in Chicago. She lives here in Chicago. Um, she was one of the, the MSs that passed the test on that first time and then had her results invalidated. Ugh. And so she sat again another time. And so she, she can claim that she passed the MS twice. <laughs> so, uh, Those are some good bragging rights. Yeah. But uh, Jill's a friend and, you know, she lives alone. And so she, four years ago, Jill and I and Kathy Cohen were together Mm -hmm. at my house watching election results. And we had bought a bunch of champagne and we were going to celebrate. And as we all remember that night went ugly really fast. (laughs) I I had a bottle. I actually had a bottle of Clota Roulette um, that night. I had a bottle. Justin decanted it for me, drank half of it at the bar, and then he decanted the rest back into the bottle, brought it to a party where we were having a lot of Tex-Mex food because we were like, yeah, of course, we're going to have Mexican food. We're going to celebrate, you know, Hillary winning this thing and did not go that way. No. So yeah, it was, so it was me and Jill and Kathy. uh, And so Jill didn't want to spend election night alone. And so Mm -hmm. she's going to come over here and we're going to um, watch the results. So yeah. together with whatever Mark. results we can get that night. You yeah. Know. And whether it's good or bad or, yeah. uh, you know, or I, I think, yeah, I think Pennsylvania is going to be the the key to it all. So we'll see. Mm. And hopefully, you know, if we can get Texas to go blue, that's going to fingers crossed, put the put the, the seal on the deal. Oh man. Well, what else? Would you want to let people know that, you know, work in the wine industry that maybe have not always felt comfortable sharing their political beliefs or, you know, using their platform to, you know, protest or just get involved politically? Like, what advice would you give to those people? Just use your voice. Go out there and use your voice. It's <laughs> it's the most powerful tool you have, your voice and your vote. Uh, well, your vote is your voice, I guess. Um, but... Uh, 
you know, young people, it's, it's so gratifying to see so many young people interested and curious about wine. And it's not necessarily in the natural wine community. I, I think we just, you know, see a little bit more inclusivity in wine generally, whereas how, you know, where it used to be so patriarchal and used to be this, you know, club of old boys and, you know, Parker scores and, you know, big California cabs and cigars. And, you know, it was a very, uh, it was, it was a very clubby atmosphere. And I think, you know, I've seen this, this generation change over and people are interested and curious and they're not, they're not sticking to what they think they should be drinking. They're actually kind of exploring things. And I think that that translates to the curiosity that young people have for everything else and the openness they have for everything else too. I love it. It's great. Yeah. And if people wanted to learn more about Louis Dresner, how would they do that? Um, the best way to find out about Louis Dresner um, is our website. We have currently our current website um, is about to change and our new website is going to go live in the next couple of weeks. And wow. um, it's been a pandemic project for Jules and Carl. Um, they've been reformatting it. There's going to be a lot more information um, and, and it's going to be a little bit more user-friendly than the current website that we have. So that'll be um, uh, louisdresner.com. And uh, we're on Instagram as louisdresner.com as well. Awesome. Very fun. Well, enjoy. I want to say enjoy. I I hope that Election Day is enjoying. It sounds like a long, brutal shift. It's going to be a long day. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Enjoy the remainder of your Sunday night. Get a good night of rest on Monday evening for that long shift on Tuesday. (laughs) um, Josefa, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Chris. You're hearing the outro music, so you know what time it is. It is time for me to tell you to subscribe to Buy the Glass wherever you stream your audio content. That's on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, all that good shit. Um, and god damn it, if you haven't voted, just fucking get out there and vote. Like, I'm I'm sure you all already did, because if you're listening to this podcast, it means you're not a dumb dumb. But yeah, make sure that you vote. And you uh, let yourself be heard. Yeah, we'll talk soon. All right, bye.